Chapter 20 of Pollyanna's Jewels. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Anna R. 77. Pollyanna's Jewels by Harriet Loomis Smith. A Spring Morning. It was the springiest sort of a spring day. The sun was warm, but the breeze had a piquant chill, reminding one that winter was not so very long over. The tulips and hyacinths were already in bloom, shaming the laggards of the garden just beginning to stretch in their dark bedchambers, and asked drowsily, Is it really time to get up? And upstairs, in the storeroom, with the windows raised to let in all the fragrant air the house could hold, Pollyanna was packing away winter clothes in mothballs and singing as she worked. Judy, who had labored up two flights of stairs for the purpose of asking her mother to arbitrate on the matter of taking turns with the new swing, looming resplendent in the backyard, forgot her grievance in a suddenly awakened interest in what was going on in the storeroom. She fixed an appraising gaze on the mothballs. Are they good to eat, mother? Oh, no, they would make you very sick. You did right to ask, mother. Never taste anything you don't know about until you have asked, mother. Judy tested the mothballs by the sense of smell and wrinkled her small nose disgustedly. They're bad candy she pronounced. I'm going to throw em out of the window. No, Judy, they're not candy at all. Mother is using them to keep the moths away. What's moths? From the standpoint of anyone not a mother, it was not a particularly opportune time for a lesson in entomology, but Pollyanna patiently explained, while she went ahead folding garments and placing them in the open trunk. Moths are little insects that make nests in something warm, like fur, and then their babies eat holes in the fur and spoil it. Did they eat holes in Elizabeth Hunt's fur rug? questioned Judy, her eyes very big and round. Pollyanna remembered a white fur rug she had seen hanging on the Hunt's clothesline several weeks earlier, on which, judging from appearances, Many generations of moths had feasted, for several patches as large as dinner plates were perfectly bare. Yes, she said, pleased at the evidence of Judy's keen observation. Moths spoiled that pretty fur rug, and that is why Mother is putting away our winter clothes so carefully. But Mother... Judy did not have a chance to finish, for just then... A resonant voice called from below. Pollyanna! Pollyanna Pendleton, Are you dreadfully busy? Not too busy to see you, Anne McGill, Pollyanna called down. The intimacy, which had started over the back fence months before, had developed so rapidly during Junior's illness as to make the formal address of first acquaintance seem rather absurd. Don't come up, Pollyanna added. I'll be down in a minute. She restored to the trunk one of several trays scattered over the room, closed the lid, and ran down the stairs. Judy followed more decorously, 
as becomes one whose mind is occupied with the matter of grave importance. The Mrs. McGill, who awaited Pollyanna in the hall below, had undergone a subtle change since the two first met. Underneath her vivacity, there had always been a suggestion of restlessness. There were times when her gaiety had seemed forced, but this morning there was no hint in her appearance of discontent masked by a brave front. She looked a woman whose zest for life was anything but a make-believe. The boy who accompanied her had changed even more strikingly since Pollyanna had first seen him. He had ceased to be a tragic figure. By some beneficent influence, he had been transformed into a wide-awake, everyday mischievous boy, noticeably handsome, but not otherwise unusual. At Pollyanna's advent on the scene, he rushed at her and threw his arms about her knees in an embrace literally staggering. "'Aunt Pollyanna!' he shouted. "'I've got a new name!' The eyes of the two women met in an unspoken question and answer. "'Why, that's fine, Philip!' Pollyanna cried, stooping to return the hug. "'My name's Philip McGill, and if Jack Horner says it ain't, I'll lick him!' "'Junior hasn't any new name,' Pollyanna said, "'but he's got a new swing!' Uncle John Pendleton sent it over from the city yesterday. Philip started for the door on a run, then recollected himself and stopped with ludicrous suddenness. Can I go and play with Junior, Mother? Certainly, son, replied Mrs. McGill. She continued to smile till he had slammed out of the room and then turned on Pollyanna a look in which conflicting emotions were so blended as to render it difficult to classify. Well she sighed. We've been and gone and done it. I feel as if I'd jumped off the top of the cliff. I'm wondering now how it is going to seem when I hit bottom. Pollyanna laughed. You can't make me believe that. You don't look at all worried. Perhaps that is a trifle exaggerated. But honestly, Pollyanna, I'm terribly excited and a little bit scared. All my friends tell me I'm taking such a risk. Of course it's a risk, cried Pollyanna. What isn't? Look at marriage. How many men do you know of who have made great fortunes by backing a sure thing? They all took a chance, didn't they? Why, one's own children are a risk, like everything else worth having. That's life. Some of my friends tell me, continued Mrs. McGill, that, well, Philip is tractable enough now. He may be a hard boy to handle later. Perhaps he will be, Pollyanna admitted. I know my children are not particularly easy to control, and I'm glad of it. I'm glad that they keep me on tiptoe, that they keep me guessing. I'm glad it's going to take every bit of love and patience and wisdom and resourcefulness I can muster to bring them up to be the men and women I want them to be. I'm glad because it means that they have individualities of their own and aren't just sheets of blotting paper sucking up impressions. There are children you can be almost as sure of as you are of the multiplication table, and I'm glad they don't belong to me. You blessed optimist, you, cried Mrs. McGill, regarding her fondly. If you ever move away, I'll follow you, if I tag you to the ends of the earth. I suppose you'll think I'm fearfully vacillating, 
but it really does make you a little doubtful of your judgment to have all your friends holding up their hands and asking why on earth you want to give up ease and peace of mind for uncertainty and hard work. Pollyanna smiled. Ask your friends why people try to climb Mount Everest and get to the North Pole. If it's ease thereafter, the easiest thing I know is to lie down and die. When I'm sick, she continued reminiscently, I always hate the time when they give me milk and chicken broth. Things that go down too easy. I like something to bite on. And you refuse to be sorry for me because my days of ease are gone and I'm not sure what's ahead of me? You're embarked on one of life's greatest adventures, said Pollyanna. I congratulate you. Mrs. McGill laughed, and then suddenly her eyes brimmed over. I've told you all this, she exclaimed, because I wanted you to help me, as you always do. But you know, Pollyanna, I couldn't have decided differently from the way I have. The day you brought him to me, a little forlorn, frightened boy, he filled the empty place in my heart. I couldn't have let him go if I'd wanted to. She looked at her friend suspiciously. I believe that was what you meant all the time, wasn't it? Before Pollyanna could either admit her guilt or deny it, the conversation was interrupted by the advent of two breathless boys. As usual, Junior got his word in first. Mother, Philip wants to play that the swing's a streetcar, and he's the conductor, but I want to play it's an airship and I'm the flyer. Ain't an airship nicer in a streetcar, Mother? Don't you think, suggested Pollyanna, smiling down into the upturned face, that when Philip is visiting you, it is nice to play what he likes? Then, when you visit him, he will let you play what you like. Reflection showed Junior the reasonableness of the suggestion. Say, Philip, he exclaimed, turning to the visitor, let's go over to your house. The matter was at last suggested by the exercise of diplomacy on the part of the two mothers, and the boys contentedly returned to their play. I don't want to go home any more than Philip does, slipping her arms about Pollyanna's shoulders. What were you doing when I came? Putting away the winter clothes and trunks. Oh, let me help you. I'd love to. And I'd love to have you, Pollyanna cried. I don't mind any kind of work if I can have company while I'm doing it. I always envied those foreign women who carried their washing down to the same stream and had a perfectly lovely time visiting while they pounded the clothes clean. Chattering animatedly, Pollyanna led the way upstairs, but halfway up the second flight, she halted and looked about her irresolutely. What is it? asked Mrs. McGill, who was just behind her. That queer knocking, don't you hear it? It must be something the children are doing in the nursery. I guess I'd better go and see what they're up to. But the nursery proved a scene of unusual tranquility. The baby, safe in her pen, was absorbed in the attempt to get the foot of a rather large teddy bear into a rather small doll slipper, and she was so engrossed by the fascinating problem that she did not immediately perceive that her mother was in the room. Judy, too, was playing quietly, as she often did when Junior was not around. Pollyanna had frequently been impressed by the thought that the mother of an only child has very little chance to know how her offspring will react to a populous world, after one so largely solitary. There was the inevitable delay due to kissing the baby and making sure that the paint on a gaudy wooden toy did not come off, but when for the second time they ascended the flight of stairs leading to the storeroom, 
they heard again the mysterious knocking. "'For pity's sake, Pollyanna!' exclaimed Mrs. McGill, her voice betraying that she was startled. "'What is that queer noise? Isn't it spooky?' Pollyanna made a hasty circuit of the third floor and came back to the storeroom where the perplexing sounds were most in evidence. But they were singularly elusive. Though they could be heard more plainly in the storeroom than elsewhere, it was difficult to locate them exactly. They were muffled, irregular, yet startlingly distinct. A discipline of the Fox sisters would have no difficulty in explaining those noises, observed Mrs. McGill, as they stood looking around them in bewilderment. I've always thought it would be rather thrilling to live in a haunted house. Pollyanna's answering laugh had a distinct tinge of vexation. Anne, instead of talking nonsense, use your wits and help me find what is making that noise. A rat playing hopscotch would produce very much that effect, mused Mrs. McGill. Do you think it could be a rat, Pollyanna? I've never seen a rat in this house, nor even a mouse, returned Pollyanna, taking the suggestion seriously. I lay it to Sin's moral influence. Of course, he's fed too much to be a good mouser. That noise doesn't seem to be in the walls. It isn't in the walls, said Mrs. McGill, positively. Hadn't you better look at the shutters? I'm convinced that no shutters ever made a noise like that. And besides, there's no wind to speak of. But psychic investigators all agree that you can't claim an honest-to-goodness ghost till you've proved it couldn't possibly be anything else. I'm sure it isn't the shutters, declared Pollyanna, but she moved toward the window nevertheless. And then a squalling snarl, suggesting, as it seemed to Pollyanna, an extremely cross baby, brought her to a halt. Like the knocking, the cry was muffled, and though perfectly distinct, seemed to come from nowhere in particular. Mrs. McGill bit a scream in two and tried to appear nonchalant, while Pollyanna looked about her wildly. As her gaze fell upon the pile of mothballs, she realized at once that their number was appreciably diminished. Without knowing just why, she sprang toward the trunk where she had so lately packed Jimmy's winter overcoat and flung up the lid. At once, the top tray was curiously agitated. She snatched off the tray and out leaped a black and white cat, clearing the edge of the trunk at least two feet. His appearance was the more formidable because every hair in his body was standing erect, and his tail, in particular, had assumed the proportions of a funeral plume. Spitting in a fashion suggesting the feline equivalent for profanity, he crossed the room at a bound and took the stairs in a flying leap that defied pursuit. Sin, gasped Pollyanna, staring after the transformed household pet, which in his present mood seemed about as amiable as a recently captured tiger. How in the world did poor Sin, mother, called Judy's reproachful voice up the stairs. I put Sin in the trunk with some of the bad candy, so's the moss couldn't eat holes in him like they did in Elizabeth Hunt's fur rug. What for did you let him out, mother? End of chapter 20